There are so many things I love about being a pastor that it's hard to pick a favorite. I love seeing the lights come on in someone's eyes when they come to have fresh insight into a hard passage of Scripture. I love seeing people steadily, slowly transformed into the character of Christ as God works on them by so many means and through so many different people's ministries to them. I love the privilege of praying with people when they're going through hard circumstances, and it's clear to both you and them that prayer is the most important work either of you could be doing right now. But if I had to pick a favorite part of preaching, excuse me, just gave it away. If I had to pick a favorite part of being a pastor, it would be preaching. The whole congregation gives their whole attention. I get to give my whole self to giving it to them. There's nothing like it. Even within preaching, if I had to pick a favorite part, it would be a moment, a feeling that sometimes happens toward the end of the sermon. I've got the whole weight of the text behind me that we've worked through. I've got the whole thrust of the sermon bearing down on top of me. And I'm trying in those last few moments to pull the whole thing together into the shape of a wedge, to drive it into the people's hearts in the hope and the effort and the prayer that God will take everything we've just seen together and drive it in deeper to produce lasting change. That's what I'm praying. That's what I'm wringing myself out in an effort to try to be an instrument of producing. In that moment... I believe the gospel more than I did at the beginning of the sermon. In that moment, I'd be less surprised than ever if Jesus came back right now. In that moment, it feels like the wall between this world and heaven has grown so thin that you could stick your hand through it. And if I can stretch my definition of preaching just a little, I'd say that feeling often slides into the final hymn. For those of you who are preachers, I don't know if you share this experience, but for me, I sing that final hymn harder after preaching than I do after sitting in the pew. The words pierce more deeply. I have a harder time getting through them without getting choked up, more so when they're echoing what I've just said than what I've just heard. I don't always have that experience when preaching, but it does come mercifully often. That experience of being carried out of myself is a grace. That feeling of being totally absorbed in publicly portraying Jesus Christ and Him crucified is a gift. It's an undeserved blessing from God. Here's how Spurgeon described the experience. I would sooner have my work to do than any other under the sun. Preaching Jesus Christ is sweet work, joyful work, heavenly work. Whitfield used to call his pulpit his throne. And those who know the bliss of forgetting everything beside the glorious, all-absorbing topic of Christ crucified will bear witness that the term was aptly used. It is a bath in the waters of paradise to preach with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven. Scarcely is it possible for a man this side of the grave 
to be nearer heaven than is a preacher when his master's presence bears him right away from every care and thought. Save the one business in hand, and that the greatest that ever occupied a creature's mind and heart. But, not sure if you saw a but coming, but here it is. But, if you are to be a workman who has no need to be ashamed, if you are to be a slave of Christ who will one day hear those joyful words, well done, you can't live for that feeling, and you can't live on it. You can't live for preaching, and you can't live on preaching. You can't live for pastoring, and you can't live on pastoring. In order to be a faithful pastor, being a faithful pastor can be neither your ultimate goal nor your foundation. You have to be something else first, and you have to be something else last. Some plants have roots that spread farther out horizontally than vertically, depending on the plant's needs and the soil they grow in. But other plants grow tap roots, which sink deep into the soil and anchor the plant. They keep the plant from getting blown away by wind, or carried away by shifting soil. So in our time together today, I want to help us all extend a taproot deep into the stabilizing soil of the gospel. Here's going to be what one of the richest, sweetest verses in the Bible has to say about what matters more than ministry. Here's what to sink the taproot of your ministry into. In Galatians 2.20, we'll see four gospel gifts that matter more than ministry. Four gospel gifts that matter more than ministry. Here they are. Every pastor's death, every pastor's life, every pastor's faith, every pastor's love. Death, life, faith, love. To give us the context... Galatians 2.20 comes near the end of one of the richest, densest paragraphs in Paul's letters. This paragraph was prompted by Peter's withdrawal of table fellowship from Gentile believers. Peter's failure to extend fellowship, full fellowship to non-kosher-keeping Gentiles, lied about the gospel. It implied that something more than faith in Christ was necessary in order to receive God's promises to Abraham and to become members of God's covenant family. In response, Paul launches into a glorious discourse on justification by faith alone. Since God's gift of righteousness in Christ, received by faith, is the sole basis of our acceptance with Him, neither the law nor any other criterion of worth enters into the basis of how we get right with God. But this good news doesn't just come to us from without. It also comes into us, carrying out a transformation so radical that it can only be described as death and resurrection. As Paul says in verse 19, For through the law I died to the law, 
so that I might live to God. Which brings us to verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I'll read that again. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is God's holy, inspired, and errant word. May he write its eternal truths upon our hearts. Point one, every pastor's death. Every pastor's death. I have been crucified with Christ. Brother pastor, if you're in Christ, and I pray you are, you've died. And that death is a gift beyond your wildest imagining. Why is this death a gift? Because this death is the death of your old death. This death dealt a death blow to your former death. This death means you're no longer dead. As Paul says of you in Ephesians 2, 1-6, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ. That corpse was you. That death was yours. But it isn't anymore because you've died with Christ. Only a death could deliver you from your old dead self. As Paul says more fully in Romans 6.6, 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Or again at the end of Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. What does Paul mean by all this talk of dying with Christ? I want to draw our attention to three elements. First, he reveals the full scope of the problem from which we've been rescued. As my friend and mentor Jonathan Linebaugh has put it, the sinner is not merely incomplete and wounded, and thus only in need of a grace that perfects and heals. The sinner is captive complicit, and a corpse, and thus in need of a grace that delivers, forgives, and resurrects. Second, Paul reveals how radical is God's solution to the problem of our sinful selves. The eye that exists east of Eden and in Adam is now no more. That self is gone. 
That self is as dead as Christ's corpse was at 3 p.m. on Good Friday. Christ's death is not the only death that the gospel announces. The good news also kills you and buries you with Him. Christ died for you. You died with Him. Both truths are crucial. And from a right desire to defend and prioritize penal substitutionary atonement, it's easy to neglect that second truth, that you died with Him. Strictly speaking, the fact that you have been crucified is not the gospel, but it is good news. It is the immediate effect of the gospel on you. Because of your union with Christ by faith, you're no longer the you that you were. Your life is no longer the death that it was. A third element of Paul's teaching here about our death is that if you've died with Christ, like he says in Galatians 6.14, you've died to every competing claim for your ultimate allegiance. Through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Far be it for me to boast except in the cross by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So you've died to the world's jeers and the world's applause. You've died to the lust for fame and the frustrations of obscurity. You've died to flatterers and critics. You've died to your own inflated pleasure and your performance and to the too critical voice in your head. Because you've died with Christ, all those powers and allures and voices are dead and gone. This gift of your death with Christ matters more than ministry because it at once announces the depth of the grave in which you lay and the length of Christ's saving arm. This gracious death matters more than ministry because it accomplished in you a fundamental transformation. You're a new person. You have a new self. You have a new nature. Your old self in Adam was buried with Christ and that tomb is now empty. That transformation matters more for your life now and your life in eternity than anything you do in the office or say in the pulpit. This death matters more than ministry because it tells you how and why to do every good deed you ever attempt. From fighting sin to fundraising to figuring out a hard passage. Romans 6.13 Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. I wrote this message on Wednesday morning of this week, this past week. It was a rough morning for my family. The morning when we're getting the kids ready for school, Kristen was exhausted because we'd just taken a cross-country trip over the weekend and a red-eye back, and she was still wrecked physically. The house was a mess because I was out teaching on Tuesday night and the kids revolted when she tried to get them to clean up. Everybody was in foul mood and bad form in our morning routine. And I made it worse. I was impatient. I was harsh. I was angry. I had to repent through clenched teeth to my oldest daughter as best I could do when she was heading out the door. That was the meager measure in which I managed to get my own old dead self under control before sitting down to write this. So the irony was not lost on me. 
of sitting down to try to prepare to preach to you all about my old self being dead when my old self, in one way, was all too alive and well that morning. So here's why you and I need this glorious gospel truth. Here's why. You and I need to know deep in our bones that the old self has become spiritual compost. In order to minister with any confidence and freedom, I need to know that my worst is behind me. I need to know that God has done in me what I could never do in myself. I need to know that God's good is infinitely stronger than my evil. I need to know that He's already won the battle both for me and in me. I need to know that the death that matters more than my physical death is in the rearview mirror. In Thornton Wilder's play, The Alcestiad, he has Apollo say to death, Death, the sun is risen. You are shaking. Start accustoming yourself to change. Point two, every pastor's life. Every pastor's life. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Since I'm dead, if I'm living, it can't be by my own life. Since I'm dead, someone else must be the life by which I live. And who else could that be but him who is life by nature? If you're anywhere near my age, you may remember from middle school era the insult often flung across hallways or over lunch tables. Get a life. Get a life. The gospel says, I know I don't have a life. No life that's worth the name. But what I have doesn't matter because Christ has me. Christ has given me the life I lacked. Christ is all the life I need. I'm alive, not with my own life, but with His. Now, I wouldn't recommend flinging that back at a middle school girl. But I would recommend flinging it back at Satan. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Yeah, take that, Satan, when you try to steal my assurance of God's love for me. I would recommend flinging this back at your self-condemning thoughts. It is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. I would recommend flinging this back at your Monday morning preaching hangover. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I would recommend flinging this back at the post-game tapes that play in your head after a Sunday or a hard appointment, replaying all your worst pastoral foul-ups, not letting you rest or sleep. It is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. As Luther said on this passage, we must look away from our own person. Christ and my conscience must become one so that I can see nothing else but Christ crucified and raised from the dead for me. If I keep on looking at myself, I'm gone. If we lose sight of Christ and begin to consider our past, we simply go to pieces. Since Christ is now living in me, He abolishes the law, condemns sin, and destroys death in me. These foes vanish in His presence. Christ abiding in me drives out every evil. The union, this union with Christ, 
delivers me from the demands of the law and separates me from my sinful self. As long as I abide in Christ, nothing can hurt me. Paul is saying that where your life used to be, Christ's life now is. As Luther wrote in The Freedom of a Christian, the gospel snatches us away from ourselves and places us outside ourselves. Why does this life that you now have matter more than ministry? Because this life became yours before your ministry, and it will be yours when your ministry is long gone. Because this life is your pledge of heaven. Because Christ's life in you and Christ's life for you is the power and the promise you need in order to do anything whatsoever for Him. Point three, every pastor's faith. Every pastor's faith. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh... I live by faith in the Son of God. When Paul says the life I now live in the flesh, he doesn't mean the sinful nature. He just means that he continues to live a bodily existence. Paul and you and I still breathe, eat, sleep, walk, wake up, stand up, sit down, and so on. But our true life, our real life, our deepest life is hidden from all the senses. You can't see it, can't smell it, can't hear it, taste it, touch it. Your real life is one that can only be seen by faith, which means it can only be lived by faith. You can only know any of what is now most deeply true about you by trusting God's promise. As Luther put it, This is the reason why our theology is certain. It snatches us away from ourselves and places us outside ourselves so that we depend not on our own strength, conscience, mind, person, or works, but on what is outside ourselves, that is, on the promise and truth of God which cannot deceive. Or again, from Luther's Babylonian captivity. For God does not deal... Nor has He ever dealt with us except through the word of promise. We, in turn, cannot deal with God except through faith in the word of His promise. Faith itself is a gospel gift. As Paul says in Ephesians 2.8, The faith by which you receive God's grace is itself a gift of His grace. And here's why this gift of faith matters more than ministry. Out of dozens of reasons I could give, here are two. First, only by faith can you continually receive the gospel that you hold out in your ministry. Only by faith can you continue to be, as you must be, a receiver more fundamentally than you're a giver. Only by faith can you remain a beggar, opening your hand to God's free offer of the bread of life. Second, every work of ministry is first, foremost, and fundamentally an act of faith. It's like what Alex was sharing with us in that last lesson of when it seems like your words are falling to the ground. Will you trust God 
that it won't return void. Every act of ministry is an act of faith. Take away faith and you take away ministry. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Even to know how Christ's life can be yours depends on faith. Here's how Calvin put it. Paul replies that it consists in faith, which implies that it is a secret hidden from the senses of man. The life, therefore, which we obtain by faith is not visible to the eye, but is inwardly perceived in the conscience by the power of the Spirit. So every true work of ministry is necessarily a work of faith. Preaching the gospel, rebuking sin, calling for repentance, exhorting in holiness, trying to counsel those who are helpless and sinking down toward despair. All those acts are means, and in every single case, only God can bring about the desired end. Which means that all the means we employ should depend on faith. They should only work by faith. They should fail without faith. None of them should promise guaranteed engineerable outcomes. It's so easy to fall down at just this point. So many modernly devised ministry methods proceed on a failure to leave room for faith. Here's what I mean. We all preach the gospel. We all desperately want people to be saved. And so we seek to, we, we seek to persuade them. We, we plead with them. We announce and we invite all of that depends on faith and is consistent with faith. But the second you seek to engineer a response, you're ministering by flesh, not faith. The second you seek to harness group dynamics in order to create an emotionally favorable environment for pressing people toward the desired outcome right in the moment, you're ministering by flesh, not faith. You might not have an anxious bench like Charles Finney had where someone allegedly under conviction of sin had to sort of sit in front of everybody until the Holy Spirit really got through to them. But do you dim the lights? Do you let the final verse play on repeat until somebody somewhere surely is going to get nudged into the end zone of faith? Do you perform spontaneous baptisms? thinking that maybe this will get somebody to be baptized who wouldn't do it the normal way. Well, here's a question. If your normal practice of preparing someone for baptism would involve walking them through your church's membership class and having an interview with the pastor to sit down and hear their testimony, if a hundred people are going to show up and get baptized when you do it spontaneously, but they're not going to do it the normal way, what's that telling you? What conclusion might you want to draw about the potential genuineness of at least some, perhaps many, perhaps most, of those hundred who can't be bothered to just show up and say, I want to get baptized, what do I do? Help me follow and obey Jesus, please, pastor. Methods that seek to guarantee faith are always in danger of replacing faith and generating false faith. Ministering by faith means leaving room for God to do what God alone can do. Ministering by faith means resolutely refusing to replace the Holy Spirit. 
Ministering by faith means wringing yourself out in grace-driven effort and leaving the results to God. Brother pastors, what can sustain you through seasons of slow growth or decline? Through seasons like we heard about where the word doesn't seem to be getting through. What can keep you going when it seems like nothing at all is happening as a result of your ministry? What can enable you to persevere through painful divisions or the failure of trusted leaders? Only faith in God's promise. Only faith in the living Christ. Only faith in the Christ whose death is your death and whose life is your life. Only faith in the Christ who loved you and gave himself for you. Which brings us to point four. Every pastor's love. Every pastor's love. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This fourth gift is not your love for Christ, but Christ's love for you. This is the gift of all gifts. This is the gift at the heart of the gospel gift. If you climb all the way up the mountain of the gospel to the very headwaters, what do you find at the source of it all? It's Christ's love for you. To meditate on this passage, I'm going to zero in on three words in turn. Loved, gave, and me. Who loved me. Christ loved you when you hated him. Colossians 1, 21-22, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Christ loved you when there was nothing lovely in you. Romans 5, 6-8, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ loved you when you deserved nothing but wrath. Romans 5.10, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. As Calvin says, in a mystery, he loved us even when he hated us. Who loved me and gave himself for me. Gave himself when, how, and to what end? On the cross, as a sacrifice, to pay the full price for the sins of all those who would ever turn and trust in him. Christ gave himself to satisfy God's wrath, to erase the record of your own sins that stood against you, and to credit His righteousness to you forever. And because of that self-gift on the cross, you're right with God now and will always be right with God, and there is nothing you can do to unright yourself from Him. As one scholar rightly says of the biblical doctrine of justification rediscovered by Luther, he's commenting on the, the difference this makes to your daily life. It's exactly right. The biblical doctrine of justification is a reality that forms the stable basis and not the uncertain goal of life. The stable basis, not the uncertain goal. Christ loving you and giving himself for you is not the top rung of a ladder you have to climb up to. 
but a bed to lay yourself down on. And who did he love? First person singular. He loved me, Paul says. The chief of sinners, the persecutor, the one untimely born. He loved me. He didn't just love them. He didn't just love us. He loved me. As Luther said, read the words me and for me with great emphasis. Print this me with capital letters in your heart. And do not ever doubt that you belong to the number of those who are meant by this me. Christ did not only love Peter and Paul, the same love he felt for them he feels for us. If we cannot deny that we are sinners, we cannot deny that Christ died for our sins. He loved me and gave himself for me. A gospel gift that has to lie under your ministry as a foundation and surround it as an impregnable wall is Christ's love for you. Not just for his people, not just for his church, not just for your church, but for you. Christ loves you. Here the grammar of the gospel comes all the way home. Everything hangs on the person and number of the pronoun. The peace of your conscience, your confidence in prayer, your ability to forgive as you've been forgiven, having the grace to respond rightly to others' failures and your own. It all depends on this one little syllable, me. Not me and myself, not me as worthy, not me as the greatest thing to happen to the church than Spurgeon. Me as hateful, me as sinful, me as dead with nothing to commend myself. That's the me he loved. That's the me he still loves. That's the me he's loved, in one sense, out of existence and into a new existence with him. A few months ago, I finished up a sermon series on Philippians. I preached the last couple paragraphs, 14 verses or so in one sermon. And it was on the secret of contentment, the riches of God's glorious provision in Christ. If I remember rightly, that sermon was definitely one of those times when God carried out of myself and let me give it all away in the sermon. But in the music of that moment, one note sounded more loudly to me than it ever has before. I don't know why, but what I felt when I was preaching is that I was more aware than ever of the infinite gap between what Christ has done for me and what I could ever do for him. Maybe it was Paul's phrase, my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Those riches in glory are inexhaustible. Compared to that, anything I can do is pitiful. I, I had put my whole self into the sermon. I'd left it all out on the field. I'd given everything I had, but what I had to give was so small. It made me wish for more so that I could give that all away too. But I think the real point, that flash of insight, it's not how little I can do. It's how infinitely much he has done.
the point isn't how small my efforts are. It's how infinitely vast His love is. No matter how large your church is or how small, no matter how many people you baptize this year or how few, no matter how impressive your preaching is or perhaps like Brother Newton, how sort of workmanlike and acceptable, what matters more than any of that is how much Christ loves you. His love for you is infinite, inexhaustible, and inexpressible. The point of the gap is not how little you love, but how much He has loved, does love, and will always love. No matter how often or how rarely your peak moments of ministry come, you can neither live for them nor live on them. You can't live for preaching and you can't live on preaching. You can only live on Christ, for Christ, in Christ, and through Christ. I can only live for the one who loved me and gave himself for me, and who now lives in me. My favorite illustration of this in all of recent church history is from Dr. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was one of the most influential preachers of the 20th century, Nearly, uh, excuse me, over 40 years after his death in 1981, his fingerprints are all over the recent resurgence of Reformed theology. He died in 81, and on July 26, 1980, his former assistant pastor and later biographer, Ian Murray, visited Lloyd-Jones at his home in Ealing, a borough in West London. For the previous two months, ill health had left Lloyd-Jones, in his own words, uh, unable to preach or do anything else. Here is Murray's account of their conversation that day. He began by speaking of how God times the encouragements He sends to us, and then went on to talk of the great importance of the command which Christ gave to His disciples on witnessing their first success. Notwithstanding, in this rejoice, not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Bear that in mind, he said solemnly. Our greatest danger is to live upon our activity. The ultimate test of a preacher is what he feels like when he cannot preach. Our relationship to God is to be the supreme cause of joy. To lean upon sermons or words of testimony from others is a real snare for all preachers. We cannot lean on them. People say to me, it must be very trying for you not to be able to preach. No, not at all. I was not living upon preaching. Rejoice not that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would rejoice not, that spirits are subject to us. We pray that we would not live upon any success you give us in ministry. We pray that we would not live upon any experience you generously grant to us in ministry, but that we would live upon your love for us, that we would live upon your sufficient work for us in Christ, that we would live upon the life you've given us in Him. Father, we pray that you would grant us to draw spiritual strength from Christ in us and the work he's done for us. We pray that you'd...
hardships, whatever anxieties, whatever challenges, whatever suffering you ordain for us, by living upon the one who loved us and gave himself for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.